but for his word. Amen. If you brought a Bible, I'd like you to open it to the book of Luke today. We've talked about this section of scripture about a year ago. Um, and this year, now some of you might just have such a good memory that you can recite it word for word. Maybe I'll call you up and you can do that. Um, but we're not just going to do the same thing we did last year. We're going to take it in a bit of a different direction. But I, I do think that God was, was desiring to stir some things up in us through his word. Um, let me just say it's a dangerous thing for you to hear the word. Uh, the reason it's dangerous is because the worst thing you can do is to hear the word and do nothing with it. Worst thing you can do is warm a seat and listen to a nice sermon and go home and say, wasn't that nice? Because what that does, the scripture says, today if you hear my voice, don't harden your heart. What happens when you hear the word and you do nothing with it is it creates a callous in your heart. Creates a hardness in your heart. You learn to hear without doing. And uh, the scripture says, let's be doers of the word, not just hearers only. As the scripture says, faith without corresponding action. Faith without works is dead because it abides alone. So really, faith without works isn't faith at all. Dead faith is not faith at all. There's a, a, an author, and he's since gone on to be with the Lord, but he wrote something that sort of sticks with you. He said, one of these days, some, some young man or woman's going to pick up their Bible and actually believe it, and everybody's going to be embarrassed because somebody finally just believed the Word of God. Now, I trust that you wouldn't be embarrassed, but what he, this was a preacher talking to other preachers. He said, you know what's going to happen is some guy's going to pick up his Bible and go, hey, I'm going to go ahead and believe this. He's going to go out and step out on it, and everybody else is going to go, oh, wow. <laughs> I, I didn't even know. We kind of turned it into such a theory and such a nice philosophy that I didn't know that, that, that these things could happen in our time. I didn't know that this could still be relevant today. We need to be the kind of people that pick up our Bible and say, why not? We're reading through the book of Acts on Wednesday nights. You know, if you read the book of Acts like a nice little storybook, that's almost depressing. Because you just say, boy, they had it good back then. I mean, you know, they had rougher conditions. They didn't live in the nice houses we live. But, well, boy, they had all that God offered. Man, I, I, wish he, I wish he, in his sovereign will, decided to do that here. The problem with that theory is that there's nothing in the Word that says he doesn't want to do it here. It's just going to take people responding to the Word of God, responding to his voice, and stepping out like Abraham did, saying, I don't care what I see, I don't care what I feel, I care what he says. If he said it, I'm going to be the crazy guy that goes out and believes it. There's a movie coming out about Noah. It may be a total dud. It may be good. I don't know. The director that's directing it doesn't fill me with confidence. Uh, you know, when you go from Black Swan to Noah, uh, my hopes aren't high. But anyways, <laughs> I guess it's good that people are dialoguing. But the one thing about it is, is whether or not the movie shows it, you got to know when you read that story, this guy must have looked nuts to everybody else. Absolutely nuts, building a giant boat on dry land. Everything about that story is nuts. And you know what? We can handle being nuts for five minutes. I can handle being nuts for a day. But Noah had to build an ark for years. Yes. You know? And not a drop of rain while he's doing it. I mean, it's one thing for us to step out and be like, well, I kind of made a fool of myself at church today, but that's okay. Everybody will forget it. We all love each other. They'll forgive me. But what about in your neighborhood where people don't just have not, want nothing to do with God they don't believe a word that he says or you say. And, and you've got to, for years, be in front of them doing something absolutely nuts. Now, I'm sure there's that moment when the, when the rain starts falling and the deep starts opening up. I'm sure there's that moment when the water starts to get ankle high that you're feeling good about yourself, but you had to put up with years of being an idiot. And uh, you read through the scriptures, there's lots of moments like that. We talk about Philip. Philip one of the first evangelists to Samaria 
And uh, I've told you before how I feel about that story. When I read that he goes up to a man from another country and he runs and catches his chariot and this man says to him, I'm reading the scriptures, the prophecy from Isaiah, and he's talking about somebody that's going to suffer for me. He's talking about somebody that's going to die. Who's he talking about? And I mean, that's just like a slow pitch over the plate, you know, just smack it out of the park. And I think sometimes it's never been that easy for me. I've, I've never had it that easy where somebody just said, you know, well, actually, there's been a couple times, but rarely do you have it that easy where somebody says, I've been reading this scripture. Would someone explain it to me? And then he says, is this guy talking about him or somebody else? And Philip tells him about Jesus, and he receives it so wholeheartedly that they're still driving along, and he sees some water, and he goes, there's water. Is there anything to stop me from being baptized? Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. That sounds like the easiest, easiest, easiest form of evangelism. And we all go, Why? If God, if you made it that easy for me, I, I mean, people would be getting born again every day. If I just had to walk up to people and they already got their Bible open to the right scripture, explain this to me. Hey, there's a swimming pool. Is there anything to stop me from being baptized? That sounds easy to me. But we forget that God spoke to him and just said, hey, I want you to start walking down a road. And the scripture says it's a desert road. And we know it's 50, 60 miles long. And he's just supposed to start walking, not knowing why he's walking, not knowing where he's walking, hoping that nobody jumps out and steals his money. And it's a desert road. It's not filled with oasis and water and all these nice things. He doesn't know what to pack for. Just start walking, Philip. And then, you know, the Lord says that through an angel. And then as he's walking, he hears the Holy Spirit tell him to go catch a guy's chariot. Now, you might think that doesn't sound hard. But I would challenge you to rethink that next time God tells you at 7-Eleven to go catch that car. <laughs> And I'm not talking about somebody that's driving fast. Let's say they're driving slow enough for you to run and catch them, but you got to run up to their car, bang on their window, and tell them to stop. Add to that that this guy's obviously from a different part of the world. Add to that that this guy is obviously in a different class. He's the assistant to the queen of Ethiopia, and Philip's just a normal guy. Add to that that Philip's had no training so far as we know in preaching the gospel, he's been trained to make sure everybody gets fed fairly. That's his job description. Suddenly this, the story doesn't seem so easy when we realize the guy had to step out in faith and do something crazy. Start walking down a road and wait for the next command from the Lord. And the next command from the Lord is go catch a stranger's chariot and, and he doesn't even tell him what's going to happen. So many of us would like a blueprint of everything that God has ever told us to do. We want a blueprint. We, want it, we, we don't just want the command. We want to know what will happen as soon as we do the command. We want to know everything that's going to take place. You know how annoying it is? I got to tell you, when I was a young, I mean, I'm 31, I'm over the hill, you know? It's a depressing thing. We're talking about the Olympics. It's a depressing thing to look at these athletes and realize they're younger than me. And, and that's a sign now. Like, okay, I'm, I'm just, just never mind. <laughs> Some of you are already just shaking your head, so that doesn't matter. Young, is, young and old, it's, it's, a, it's a fluid thing, isn't it? But uh, I remember when I was younger, and you know, you're at that age where everybody thinks you're full of promise, but uh, you could easily blow that potential is what they're thinking. And they, they try to sound fatherly or grandfatherly, and they look at you sagely and say, what's your five-year plan? And you go, well, celebrating the fifth anniversary of you asking this question. Um, I'm not sure, because... The last thing you know is that the Lord said, follow me, follow my voice, start doing this and I'll give you more. And you, you walk it out and you'll, you'll, as you walk closer, you'll, you'll, you'll find more, you'll know which way to go, but, but be led by the Spirit, follow his voice. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with planning. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with preparation, but you know, we don't know what five years is going to look like most of the time. That's not, that's not to say you don't invest in an RSP if that's what you want to do or, you know, put money in a kid's college fund. But I'm telling you, Jesus said, don't even worry about tomorrow. <laughs> and so it's a challenging thing when people think it's irresponsible for you to say, I'm following God. 
But everybody we read about, all our heroes, they had to just be crazy. They just had to be nuts. And they had, to, they had to tell people that the only thing they were going on was some invisible man in the sky told them to do something. And that doesn't go over too well with everybody. So we look at these scriptures and we say, why not here? And what you've got to decide is, I'm willing to be as crazy. And I'm not talking about actually being crazy. I'm not talking about, you know, not taking your meds and saying it's God. I'm talking about really hoping against hope, believing what you shouldn't be able to believe because God said it. And in Luke chapter 10, we see a dramatic example of Jesus kind of pushing the birds out of the nest. In our Bible study in Loon Lake last week, we were reading from the book of Mark where Jesus sent out the 12. And that sounded challenging, but here he's sending out 70. Now, some translations say 72. That could easily be as well. 70 or 72, I don't think that's going to affect my faith too much. If it's one or the other, 70 or 72, I think we got a, a pretty close number. Is anybody here going to lose their salvation if it's, if it's the other one? No. Anybody going to leave the church? If I say 70 and you think it's 72, is that going to be split? No? Okay, we're all right. Let's go. We're going to go with 70 for today. If it's 72, the Lord will forgive me on the great judgment day. But it says 70. 70 were sent out. This is Luke chapter 10. It says, After this, the Lord, that being Jesus, appointed 70 others. He sent them in pairs ahead of them to every city and place where he himself was going to come. Now, he's already sent out the 12. It's important to note that he's sending them to a different part of Israel. Uh, the 12 he sent north. These guys he's sending south. And he's sending them to areas that he hasn't been yet. Um, these are areas that haven't been hit yet. And you think, what's he going to tell his advanced crew to do? Go set up stages. Go tell people. Invite him to a meeting. Hey, somebody important's coming to your town. Here's what he tells them. He says in verse 2, the harvest is plentiful. That's good news, isn't it? I mean, no, none of us want the harvest to be slim. He says, the harvest is plentiful. That's the first good news. Then he says, but the laborers are few. Now, this is a problem that a lot of them aren't used to. I mean, the worst problem you have is when you've got lots of people to do the work, but you've got no harvest to come in. You're going to starve this winter. But in this case, Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. In this case, the harvest is talking about people. He says the harvest is plentiful. There's lots of people that are being are just ready to be to reached. I mean, the Holy Spirit's already prepared them. They're set. But he says the people that are going to go out and bring them in are few. So what's his response to this? His response isn't just to say, and I guess that's the way it is, so too bad. His response is, here's what we do. We beseech, in other words, let's pray and ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Notice that it's his harvest. It's not ours, it's his. But we're part of his crew. In verse 3, he says this, Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. I don't know if you caught that, but they just, he just told them to pray for something. And I know what it's like. We've all done this. Have you ever had somebody that the Lord put on your heart and you've got a special compassion for this person and you know you're supposed to tell them something, you're supposed to be the one that reaches them and, and they're on your heart and you just start praying, Lord, send someone into their path. <laughs> and you think, oh, I'm doing my work. I'm doing my job. Just send someone into their path. You see them every day at work. Send somebody into their path that would tell them about you, oh, Jesus. And, and if you want to be extra spiritual, you'll, you'll hug a step and you'll weep some tears and you'll say, oh, Lord, I see them every day. Every day, Jesus, and my heart breaks for them. So will you send someone in their path? Oh, I don't know, somebody that they see every day maybe. <laughs> Just send somebody. Jesus gets the disciples. He says, all right, let's pray. That the Lord would send out laborers. Oh, we can do that. We can pray that prayer. We can ask God, God, send out laborers. And in the next phrase, he goes, okay, go. No, 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 no. Hey, <laughs> I'm part of the prayer team. <laughs> we just, prayer team, we send other people. You go. And he doesn't say, go. 
This is going to be the most fun you've ever had in your life, and we're stopping at Disneyland on the way. Yes. That's why most teenagers go on mission trips to Mexico. It's the Disneyland on the way. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he actually says, go. And the next phrase he says is not the most exciting phrase. I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Well, I thought we were supposed to be the head, not the tail. Can we be the wolves in the story? Can we be the strong ones? Can we be the ones with a, you know, I don't know, maybe a sheep with an AK-47. Can we be that? <laughs> he says, no, I send you out as, well, it's not just sheep, it's lambs. Not even big macho, you know, big horn sheep. I send you as lambs in the midst of wolves. In verse 4, carry no money belt. This just gets better, hey? <laughs> don't take your wallet, no bag, no shoes, and don't cheat and greet somebody on the way and hope they give you something. Now, why would he say something like that? Do you think he wants them to suffer on the way? I don't think that's the case. I think he's teaching them to rely heavily on God. You know, like I said, we like our backup plans, don't we? We like our contingency plans. We like to trust God as long as there's a safety net if he fails. I'm stepping out in faith, but I've also got some money stashed away in case God doesn't come through. <laughs> but he says, no cheating. You're going to trust me. You're, gonna, you're going to rely on God the whole way. Don't take your extra cash. Don't take your extra shoes, your extra clothes, your extra bag. Go with what you have. Verse 5. Whatever house you enter... First say, peace be to this house. Now, of course, we know in this day and age that he's talking about uh, most of these villages are going to. There's not a holiday in. There's not a days in. There's not a, you know, anything like that. You have to rely on the kindness of strangers. You have to rely on hospitality. And at, the, 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 at the, that time, at that day, uh, it was the right thing to do that if someone came into your house and needed a place to stay, somebody would give them a place to stay. They placed a high value on hospitality. But here's the thing. These guys aren't just two strangers passing through. They're people that are going to come to their village and tell them to repent and believe in the kingdom, believe in the gospel. So these are people that are coming with maybe a controversial message. Some villages are going to give them a place to stay, and some aren't going to want them in their village. These guys are going to mess the status quo up. You know, the scripture says in the book of John that many of the rulers of the synagogue, so, you know, you'd have, uh, you had the, the great temple in Jerusalem, but you also had synagogues in, in every place. And in every village, you had a synagogue and you had a ruler of the synagogue. In other words, you had the guy who was looking after the people of the village. This was, he was in charge of this synagogue. He's the guy that teaches them. He's the guy that, you know, makes it all work. He's, he's the guy. He's not the high priest or anything like that, but he's, he's the one that's teaching them. He's the one that's taking care of them. It says in the book of John that many of the rulers of the synagogue believed in Jesus but were afraid to confess him. For they were afraid, they were afraid of the, 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 the Jewish leaders, they were afraid of the religious leaders, they were afraid that they were going to lose their job. It says they were afraid that they were going to lose their place, lose their position. So you got to understand that when they came in preaching this stuff, there are going to be people that say, no, we don't, we don't need you messing things up here. So you may or may not have somebody let you stay at their house, but whether or not they let you stay at their house depended on whether they believed what you were saying. Because in the same way that it was part of their culture to give hospitality to strangers, it was also implied that if you gave hospitality to somebody that caused trouble, you were an accomplice. So there's going to be some villages where they don't get guaranteed beds. And it says here, when someone lets you in their house... And they let you stay there. You give them peace. You say, peace be to this house. And it's not just a religious phrase, shalom. It's you're, you're actually blessing their house. You're blessing the people in the house. And it says this. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give to you. 
For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. What does this mean? And I, I, I found this to be true in, in every, you know, new community that we've gone to that hasn't really had a strong foundation of the gospel, that God always has a family that, that, that is there that will be the, the open door to the whole community. God's got one or two people. God's got a family. God's got a house that is an open door to a whole community of people. We've been in places in the north, in, in reserves in the north, and there was just, there's just one you know, one couple, one guy, one woman, you know, that's, that's opened their door. They're the only ones that are willing to have you there, but they are the open door. God starts doing something in their family. God starts doing miracles there. He starts showing them who he is, and they get so excited. They tell their friends, and their friends open up, and all of a sudden, that house is full of people that want to hear the word. But it starts with one family. You say, well, that's not relevant to me. I live in Lloydminster. I'm not going out planting new churches out in far off places. I'm right here. Well, maybe it does affect you if you realize that God has sent each and every one of us into our own little mission field. If you think that Canada is fully evangelized, you're not looking around. Canada, for the most part, has been inoculated with just enough religion to not want it. But not Jesus. It's been just enough religion to make them cold towards it. But in reality, very few have encountered the risen Savior. Very few have been actually presented with the reality of the gospel in all of its power. Very few know who Jesus really is. And it's not because they don't want to know. It's because in a lot of cases, nobody's had the guts to really show them Jesus. So we're all sent into our mission fields. We're all there. Here's the thing. If you think, we've talked about this before, but if you think it's all about getting your stats up, I want to go back to church and tell them, I won 17 people to Jesus. I want to tell them, I mean, I'm going to get my crown. I'm going to get it here and in heaven. They're going to, whatever it takes. Then you have to know that the kingdom is not about stats or quotas. Kingdom is being about obedient to the king. Whatever God, if God sends you. (laughs) I remember Josh was in Loon Lake with us. And the Lord gave me a scripture for Josh. And Josh deserves a good scripture, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. The scripture the Lord gave me. <laughs> yeah, I'm sending you to a stiff-necked people, a hard people. He says, yeah, I will make your forehead like flint. As tough as their heads, your head's going to be tougher. <laughs> that was the scripture that the Lord gave to Josh. Now, if God goes to a stiff, if Josh goes to a, a, a community of stiff-necked, hard-nosed people, and you go to a group of people that are just ready to receive the word, but you both obey the Lord, do you think you're going to get a higher reward because people responded better to you than they did to Josh? No. no. Our job's not to, not, and not to figure out what happens when we preach the word. It's our job is just to obey the Lord. Right. Let him worry about this stuff after. Right. And so here he says, okay, Don't go moving from house to house. When God opens a door, go through that door. There's going to be people at your workplace. There's going to be people at your school that God opens a door with them. Let God use them. Spend some time with them. Don't just keep moving from person to person like you're selling vacuums. You're you're showing them Jesus. And he says here, if there's a man of peace there, stay there. Because that's the person I've told you to reach. You stay there, and if they're, they're serving you food, you eat the food, you eat whatever they give you. And this was a big thing, you know, um, when, I was, when I was a teenager, and we first started going on mission trips to places that served you weird food. And I remember it was hammered into me as a kid. And, and you know, being a pastor's son, it was hammered me, into me anywhere, because sometimes you'd go to somebody's house after a church service, and you can't be the kid, you can't be the picky kid that goes, I don't like this. Because then that reflects on everybody. That reflects on the pastor, reflects on everything. So I was taught from a young age, eat what's set before you. So the best thing, sometimes you're just like, stop setting things before me. <laughs> Quit it. 
I remember being in um, God's River, Manitoba, and we went out with uh, some of the people of the reserve um, onto the ice, and they had had a net under the ice, and uh, we pulled up that net. Oh, there's so many fish. So, I mean, just an abundance of fish. We always joked that in God's river, you could, you could trip and your pole go in the water and you'd catch something. You know, it was just that, that good. But, you know, they had the, the full table full of stuff there. And, and amongst all that beautiful fish, for some reason, they thought it'd be nice. Do you, you guys know what Mariah fish is? It's like the catfish's dumb cousin. You know, <laughs> that's... <laughs> bottom feeding, bony, just not great. But I'll eat the Mariah. I like catfish. I could eat Mariah. But not just the Mariah. It's a Mariah liver. And for, for whatever reason, and maybe it's the way they prepared it, but it was like black on the outside. When you cut into it, there's this green ooze that comes out. Oh. Now, why do you need to do that? We have so much fish here. We're not starving. But of course, they had a better attitude than me. They're saying, we're going to eat the whole fish. You know, we're going to not waste anything, which is wonderful until you tell me I'm not going to waste anything. And so (laughs) we eat it as we said before. I remember being, you know, in in a village in Asia and and eating something that was just, most of the time I just loved the food. I mean, just loved it. But there was a couple of things that were a little foreign to me. And um, I learned a trick. And here's the trick. You eat slowly. Because I was eating so fast that they kept filling my plate. I was eating it to get it over with. But they're thinking you like it so much, your plate's empty. Nobody else is done. Here's more for you. So I learned eat it real slowly and you don't finish before everybody else. But in a lot of cultures, when you go eat their food, you accept the people. You notice something about this. You notice that all of these things that he's telling them, He's telling them, lay yourself aside and pick up my mission. You are not your own anymore. You're you're here with the same mission as me. Jesus said, I don't do anything I want to do. I do whatever the Father tells me to do. And he was the happiest guy on the planet. Don't worry. He says to them, guys, this isn't about you. Don't take all your extra stuff. I'll take care of you. Whatever they put in front of you, you eat it because you're representing me. Everything they're doing is for the kingdom. As they eat this, he says, let them take care of you. You're worthy of that. But he says, in verse 8, whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. And here's where it gets good. Heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now you remember, these are all the places Jesus is going to visit. He's not sending them so he doesn't have to go. But he's preparing the way. This is the crew that goes before the Lord. And he says, you go in there, you, you preach. He goes, heal anybody in this city that's sick. And tell them that the reason they were healed is because the kingdom of God has come near to them. That grabs me. Because this, if this is what the kingdom of God looks like, what do we think about when we talk about, you know, the kingdom of God coming? Some people are terrified when they hear that. Some people are, are, are worried about it, and maybe they should be, but here's what it looks like in the gospel. When the kingdom comes near to you, people get healed. It doesn't say it in this particular telling, but it does in other gospels. It tells us that he said, heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers, cast out evil spirits, raise the dead. Freely you've received, freely you give. When the kingdom of God comes near to you, demons go away. When the kingdom of God comes near to you, people are healed. When the kingdom of God goes near to you, the lepers that are on the outside of society get brought back in and they're cleansed. And because you've received freely, you give freely, you don't charge them a bit, and you don't limit what, they, what you have to offer them. Here's what it says in the next verse. It says this. Whatever city you enter and they don't receive, you go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Now here's the thing that they're saying, that the kingdom of God came near to them whether or not they recognized it. How many times has God visited and you didn't know? 
How many times has an opportunity from the Lord come and you failed to recognize it? Jesus wept over Jerusalem saying, how I wish I could have gathered you like a hen gathers its chicks. But now they will surround you and hem you in and barricade against you. And now, I mean, uh, the things they will do because you refused to recognize, you didn't recognize your day of visitation. He says, these guys, if there's a village that doesn't receive them, they walk out of the village and they say, we're wiping off the dust from your village. But be sure of this, whether or not you knew it, whether or not anybody was healed, whether or not anybody was de- uh, you know, freed from demons, whether anybody received, be, know this, the kingdom of God has come near to you today. He says, in verse 12, he says, I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, his old hometown, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You'll be brought down to Hades. The one who listens to you listens. Now, now he's talking again to his disciples. He says, the one that listens to you listens to me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Now, in order for that to be true, in order for us to be able to say, if I was rejected spreading the gospel, if I was rejected sharing Jesus with somebody, they rejected Jesus, they didn't just reject me, then we better be a vessel that's, that's clear of our opinions and clear of our ideas and clear of ourselves because, you know, half the time somebody rejects Jesus, they're actually rejecting a person that's, that's not been a clear representation of Jesus. You understand what I mean? So many times... We live a double life in front of somebody and then we tell them that we we say that they're rejecting Jesus when in fact they're rejecting somebody that hasn't made up their mind to fully follow Jesus. But if you really want to follow Jesus, you'll say, hey, I'm not here. I'm not on the planet for me. Although God loves me and he cares for me and I know he wants the best for me, this is not my purpose to see what works for me. My purpose is to walk out the will of God because the harvest is plentiful. And if you love people... Here's the deal. If you love God, you'll love people. And if you love people, you'll know. You'll want them to know Jesus. That's your motivation. And he sends them out with the same heart he has, the same authority he has. And I want you to read verse 17 because it's pretty cool. It says, the 70 returned with joy. Wait a second. The 70 that you said were going to be sheep, lambs amongst wolves. The 70, you didn't let them take any extra cash or food or clothes. The 70, you made them go into villages that might not even like them and they wouldn't have a place to stay. The 70 who are going to embarrass themselves in front of everybody by saying nutty things like the kingdom of God has come near to you. Those guys came back with joy. In our culture, individual expression is like the highest thing. The most important thing is that you express yourself. You just be you. The worst thing is for you not to be you. I believe that we're all unique. I believe that God gives you each individually. And in fact, the scripture is pretty clear that you should not be a clone of somebody else. We all serve a different part, right? God is a God of creativity. God's the creator himself. Certainly, he wants us to be like him, and we create, and and we're individual, and we're unique. However, maybe it's not an expression of ourselves, but maybe it's letting God in his own way express himself through us. The highest expression, the highest form of art, the highest form of reason, the highest form of living is not to figure out who you are personally. Your highest form of existing is to say, God, who do you want me to be? We can say to our kids, you know, son, you can be anything you want to be. But the best thing for you to ever say to them is, you know, son, daughter, you can be anything God made you to be. 
and what he wants you to be, you can be. And it may look like you don't have the skills, you don't have the intelligence, you don't have the physique, you don't have the, the charisma, but if God called you, you can do it. And see, we've got to lay aside all of our plans to be individuals, and you will be an individual, but you need to not make that the idol that you aspire to. You instead need to say, not my will, but yours be done. And these guys laid themselves down. These 70 did exactly what Jesus told them to do. Despite what their better thoughts, despite their better ideas, they said, okay, we're not going to take what we want to take. We're not going to pick what we're going to eat. We're not going to stay where we want to stay. We're going to do all the things that you send us to do. And they returned with joy. I don't know how many times we have to crack the code. But the only way you're ever going to be really satisfied in life, only way you're ever going to be happy, I mean, really, I mean joy, I should say. Happy, happiness is fleeting. Happiness is about... In fact, even, even the word, our English word happy, comes from the, the old English word hap. Now, it's not a word we use anymore, but we use it sometimes in happenstance, right? It's just stuff that happens to happen. So happiness is based on external factors. What's happening, causing you to be happy? Chance. Not that chance, but just <laughs> things that, you know, whatever's around you, that's what's causing you to be happy. But joy is an eternal spring that even in the midst of the worst circumstances, you can have joy. Now, there is a richness of joy. The scripture talks about fullness of joy. It says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. In another place, it says, in your presence, there are pleasures everlasting. I, I, I believe that it's the greatest lie we've ever told ourselves that the only way to be happy is to pursue our own goals. But I'm telling you, the only way to really have joy is to let God tell you, this is who you are. Let me do this through you. Let me be this in you. Be who I created you to be. And when you discover that, you'll discover a joy that you had no idea you could feel. You had no idea, and it won't matter what's going on around you. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a church in Philippi. That's a church in Macedonia. And he wrote them this letter in one of the worst prisons that the Roman Empire had. We call it now the Mamertine Prison. It was a converted sewer that they turned into a prison. And as he's chained, they would give him something like two visits a month. Somebody would come and he'd dictate a letter. In this prison, they would often develop a rot that would come from the shackles carving into your skin and you not getting relief. You would experience many times, the history tells us, that there were times that men would die and be left there for a time, floating in the sewage. Rats jumping from body to body. And in that prison, he writes a letter that we in 2014 have come to know as the letter, the epistle of joy. Because more than any other letter and many, any other book in the Bible, per capita, it has more mentions of the word joy than any other letter. How can a man in that position write a letter so full of joy? Because his joy did not come from outside circumstances. His joy came from the inside. Hallelujah. No, I'm not talking about pretending you have joy. I'm not talking about being strong for the people around you. I'm not talking about putting on a good front. I'm talking about genuine, he was really full of joy. Yes. These guys come back with great joy. Jesus had more joy, the scripture says, than anybody else. Have we figured out yet that the secret to joy has nothing to do with chasing the same things the world chases? The secret to joy is saying, hey, guy that created me, what'd you make me for? Why did you create me? Why am I here? What do you want me to do? And walking it out, you'll find a joy that the world doesn't even know. They came back with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching. Some translations say I saw, but 
in the, in the Greek that, the, that this gospel is written in, it's not one instance. So you, you might think that he's talking about the first time that Satan fell from heaven, but that's not what he's talking about because it says, I was watching and continue to watch. While he sent them out, he said, I was watching Satan fall, fall, fall from heaven like lightning. Well, did Satan go back to heaven? What's he talking about? I remember my dad used to compare it to a man shooting down targets, sending his arrows out and shooting down targets. I was watching Satan, all his strongholds. Because you read through the Gospels, every time Jesus went to a new village, he was confronted with demonic oppression. There were territories where, this, where Satan thought he had this group. He had him. he oppressed him. he tortured him. And when Jesus came in, he said in his mission statement in Luke chapter 4, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set up free those who are oppressed by the devil, to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Two of those things were setting people free who were captive to something. And these disciples went into new regions and as Jesus sent them out like arrows, he sent them out. Boom! There's a, there's a stronghold that falls. Boom! There's a stronghold that falls. Boom! There's another one. And they are taking down the forces of darkness. Two by two. Verse 19. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Let's hear that again. How much power of the enemy? And nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that spirits are subject to you. In other words, he's not saying you're not allowed to be happy about that. But he says that's not even the big thing. You guys think that's cool, that demons have to listen to you? You think it's cool that people get healed? I'll tell you what's even better than that. Your names are recorded in heaven. Praise God. And at that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and you've revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sights. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are, your, are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. In John chapter 4, he says something that still grips me. Here he, he said that, the laborers, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, right? It's not the first time he said it, though. First time he said it that we have recorded was right outside the village of Samaria. And he talked to a lady at the well that he shouldn't have talked to. And he told her everything about her life. The secrets she thought no one knew. And she went back to her city to go find everybody and tell them, I think I found the Messiah. He says this. His, his disciples say, Lord, you got any food? He says, I don't need food right now. I've got food you don't know about. They said, who gave you food? He says, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his work. He says this in John chapter 4, and we'll close with this thought. He said... In verse 35, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you. So what he's saying is there's something you think and there's something I think. Here's what you say. We got time, right? He says, you say four months. We got four months to the harvest. He said, behold, in other words, look, I say, Open up your eyes to what I say. You say you got all the time in the world. I say, 
Lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They're white for harvest. When the harvest, when the, the harvest that he's talking about, when they would get white, that means you better pick it. It's a, I mean, it's ripe. It's ready to go. Don't leave it another day. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They're white for harvest. Verse 36. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Did you hear that? They rejoice together. Apparently this is joyful stuff. For in this case the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for which you've not labored. Others have labored. You've entered into their labor. We can fool ourselves and say that Canada is reached. You can say, well, maybe someday I'll go to the other side of the world and we'll see all this stuff we've been talking about. And I'll go over there. And I'll, people, will would be crowds coming into Jesus. But you live here. And maybe you will go to the other side of the world. There's nothing wrong with that. God could definitely send you there. But you've been planted here. You were born here. God did something. Well, not all of you were born here, but you're here now. The Lord brought you here. And you've got to at some point ask yourself, why? Is the harvest, we got another four months, you figure? You think we got some years? Or do you figure it's time now? Do you notice that the disciples had no idea what was really going on? They had their own perception based on what they saw. But Jesus said something to them. And I believe when he said, lift up your eyes, I believe it's the same thing as when he said to a blind man, open your eyes and see. I believe the moment he said, lift up your eyes, they saw something they didn't see before. He says, lift up your eyes, look at the fields. Because we get so intent on what we're doing. And on the life we're living, on the stuff, the, as we've said before, the tyranny of the immediate, all that stuff that's happening. Oh, we're busy, we're busy, busy. If somebody asks you, how you doing? Good, busy though, busy. Ain't that the way? Oh yeah. You know, waiting in line at Tim Hortons. We all say the same thing. We all are. We get so intent looking down at our feet and what we're doing that there are times in life where Jesus has to grab your chin and pick up your head and say, look, the fields are ready. See, the issue isn't that the fields aren't there. The issue isn't that the fields aren't ready. The issue is you got to lift up your eyes. And when you lift up your eyes, you can't forget what you've seen. You can't unsee it. These guys, never again, never again in their life did they act apathetic. Never again did they say, we don't need to do that. We don't need to go over there. Let's just enjoy this. For the rest of their lives, they could not unsee what Jesus showed them. For the rest of their lives, John preaches for the rest of his life till he's an old man and they can't do anything, he can't kill him. They exile him, an, exile him to an island where he can't bother anybody and he gets the greatest revelation anybody's got so far and he writes it down and he sends it to the churches. Peter can't stop seeing what Jesus showed him for the rest of his life. He preaches, he preaches, and preaches, and is about to leave Rome, escaping Nero's persecution one more time until he finally sees Jesus walking back into the city. He says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus says, I've come again to be crucified. And Peter says, okay, I get to have my reward now. He goes and he's crucified too. Philip, not Philip that's in Samaria, but we're talking about another Philip now. That Philip goes and preaches to, I mean, uh, we can only speculate the places he reached, but he goes to the farthest reaches. Thomas, most sources say Thomas went all the way to India preaching the gospel. He went as far as Alexander the Great till somebody stabbed him with a spear and ended his life. James, not James that was beheaded, but the, James the brother of Jesus wasn't here at this little meeting, but the same thing happened to him when Jesus was resurrected. His eyes were open. And that man preached and preached until he was an old man, and they said his knees were so calloused from kneeling down and praying 
And he was standing on top of a building preaching the gospel. And he made some people so mad that a guy got up on top of the roof with him and pushed him off. He fell onto the ground and rolled onto his knees and began to pray until finally somebody clubbed him over the head. These guys could not stop once they opened their eyes. And they were joyful. Jesus said, trust me on this. Once you start going in the harvest field, you're going to rejoice. Talks about rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the harvest, rejoicing. You need to buy into the fact that if, if he's real, if this is real, I mean, if it's not, what are you doing? If it's not, if there is no God, there's no reason to live. There's no purpose. But there is a God, and you know that. And if there is, I mean, if there isn't, then, then yeah, eat, drink, and be merry, for the, tomorrow we die. But if there is, is there anything in life that's worth more than him? Is there anything we could do with our lives that'll bring us any satisfaction outside of him? See, we worship like believers and then we live like atheists at times. I'm not blaming you. I'm not saying that's you, but so many of us. But if you really believe this, then I'm telling you, the only joy there really is, the full joy that Jesus talks about, I say these things to you that you may that your joy may be full. Have you experienced fullness of joy? Fullness of joy means, you know, sometimes we're happy and we're also a little sad at the same time because because there's always a cost to our happiness. There's always something that's not right. There's always something something else that had to suffer, but there's a joy that has no sorrow to it. There's a joy that fills you, that, 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 that causes such inward pressure that external circumstances yield to, the, to what's coming out of you and can't push you down, but instead you're pushing them back. This is what we're talking about. Are you prepared to pray, Lord, send your labors into the field? The say amen and hear him say, you're the first one, Go. Are you prepared to accept the fact that you might be one who sows, you might be one who waters, and you might be one that harvests? And what you are does not matter as long as you're obeying God. Are you willing to accept that this is not about our lives, this is about his kingdom? But Jesus said this, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And whoever's trying to save his life, whoever spends their time trying to make their life work, will lose it. The only way this works, guys, if we say, my life is worth nothing if it's not for him. But thank God in him, I find my true worth and my true value. Because Jesus placed a value on me that nobody else on the planet has ever put on me. He said, the value for you is my life because that's what he paid for it. Has anyone else put that kind of value on you? Jesus also said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? So there he tells you that one soul is worth more than the whole world. You ever thought about that? It's a dangerous thing to hear and not do. Worst thing I could do today is read you these scriptures and then say, go in peace, think about it, come back, we'll talk about something else. So worst thing I could do for you would, would actually damage your growth. The best thing we can do is say, I want you to go home and I want you to read this again. I want you to go home and I want you to pray about it. We all have a different part to play in this, but you do have something to do. For those of you that have been seeking, not knowing what you're here for, my prayer for you is that God would reveal that to you. We all, we all have something to give. We've all got somebody to tell. And I want to pray for you today that your eyes would be opened.
that your chin would be lifted up because we've been so busy looking at stuff that's going on that demands our attention, that demands our energy, that we've forgotten that there's eternal stuff here that matters far more than anything. It matters far more than your job. Your job's important to God because you're important to God, but there's stuff worth more than that. There's stuff worth more than that vacation you're going to take. If you want to take a vacation, praise the Lord. God will go with you. Nothing against vacations. But there are more important things than the latest snowmobile or quad. There are more important things than all the things we think are valuable. And if God gives you a snowmobile, ride it and enjoy it and worship God out in the snowfields. But there are more important things than spending our energy and time on stuff that will perish with the using. Amen? God's not against you having fun. In fact, I, I believe that he created us with the ability to have fun for a reason. But I'm telling you, the only joy you'll ever find that's real is found in his purpose. Jesus said, that's what makes me happy. It's what makes me feel like I had a rich meal is doing what he sent me to do. Amen? Stand up. I understand I've taken longer than we normally would take, but I believe that, I believe that the Lord is stirring things in us. Amen? Isn't the greatest thing in the world when God stirs things in you? I, I love it when he stirs stuff and wakes things up in me and Sometimes it's just opening your Bible and seeing something you didn't see before. Sometimes it's somebody saying something that you've heard a thousand times, and yet for some reason it struck a chord this day. Sometimes it's seeing something with your eyes. Jesus said, blessed are you. Blessed are your eyes for seeing what you see. Blessed are your ears for hearing what you hear. Father, open our eyes. Lift up our eyes to see what you see. Lift up our eyes to the harvest. Lift up our eyes to understand that we've been placed in a city that's ready. A city that's primed and ready to be changed. It's easy to be depressed by what we see in the immediate vicinity around us. It's easy to get discouraged as Elijah said, there's nobody that follows God but me. And then God opened his eyes and said, there are many more and many to come. Open our eyes. As a servant said to Elisha, Lord, don't you see? We're surrounded by enemies. And Elisha says, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And as his eyes were opened, he looked and he saw the armies of heaven. And he said, there are more for us than there are against us. Open our eyes that we would see the host of heaven. That we would see that there are more for us than there are against us. Open our eyes to see that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And there is no name that is above your name. There is no sickness that is above your name. There is no thought that is above your name. There is no power in heaven, hell, or on the earth that is above your name. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. I want us to pray. Right now, you know, I see our sister here from Ukraine, and I'd like us to pray for that nation right now. I'd like us to pray for your family, because we got believers over there. And that is a nation that God loves so dearly. One of my favorite preachers that I had the privilege of eating supper with one time was a Ukrainian named Bill Bazansky. 
And I remember being so excited as a young man, young teenager, sitting at a seafood restaurant in Dallas, Texas, as he told the story of ministering to a group of people that hadn't heard the gospel. It was actually a group of gypsies that were kind of living in the area. And he talked about how he taught them to believe God when it seemed like everything else said don't believe. And there was a river that was flooding and it was going to overflow, their vill- overflow in their village like it had flooded the other villages. And he was preaching that morning. He said, the sun will come out in this many hours and in that many hours it did come out. But there was an old man who believed God and he had just heard the gospel for the first time. This guy taught him, have faith in God. So he goes out. He walks out to his land and he walks out to the shore of the river and he draws a line and he says, in the name of Jesus, you don't go past this line. And there are pictures that were in the paper the next day of the river going up in the middle until it came out of the village and then spreading out. And it did not go past that line. 